This episode features some topics and language of an adult nature. We thought we'd go through just like that, they said. Of course, the tanks couldn't go through all the mud and snow and everything. So it was just hop skipping from one position to another for two years. And we finished in Trieste. in the Italian campaign of World War II. Episode 9, Trieste and War's End. In the last episode, we left the New Zealand infantry sitting on the southern banks of the Senio River in Italy. Having fought rapidly northwards up till that point, the Allies were halted at the Senio River, not by the enemy, nor by the river's large stop banks, but by the inevitability of winter. The Kiwi troops and their allied mates spent the colder months of late 1944 and early 1945 holding the line with no major battles, but instead regular patrolling and probing the defences. As had previously been found by the New Zealand division at Elsonia the previous year, the Italian winter is harsh, making the roads useless for trucks and tanks, the skies hardly flyable for bombers and fighters, and even the foot-slogging infantry were not able to make much progress. So the Senio became the home to the New Zealand soldiers through the Christmas, New Year and into January, February and March of 1945. The soldiers of the infantry would be rotated in and out of the line, taking advantage of going back for rest periods and comfort or for specialist training courses before returning to the stalemate at the river. Eventually, however, the warmer weather would come and the spring sunshine melted the snow and ice and the slushy ground hardened sufficiently again to support heavy vehicles. So the Kiwis and the Allies prepared for a major push forward crossing the Senio with the intention to move into the Po Valley and continue northwards. The spring offensive therefore began on the 1st of April 1945 beginning with the troops pulling back and the Allied air forces and artillery hitting hard the German-held ground on the northern side of the river. This was followed by the engineers laying Bailey bridges to cross the river, and the infantry streaming across into enemy territory. Ted Waters, of 21 Battalion, recalls the lead-up to that big push. But we finally got to the Senio, and we... Uh, then we were bogged down for the winter. But that was an interesting uh, area because we could have... Uh, um, the, the, we, the tanks were uh, not able to do anything and uh, they, they actually were setting us up with, uh, uh, with machine guns. And we had fun and games at night time with the... Uh, Germans with their, uh, they'd fire up and we'd uh, line up on them and we'd shut up their bloody machine guns smartly. But when it comes to the uh, the next move, um, we had uh, 
um, we had uh, all these different poles and uh, um, free French and God knows what, oh, the Kirkus and all the rest of it. And uh, so uh, we, uh, um, the, um, the Senio running through here, Germans were dug in over here and they decided to do a major and we had to pull back uh, 400 yards and we had to put uh, sheeting down. When the final push came, we left from there, from the senior. Nolan Ray Hania of 28 Māori Battalion. And uh, it was decided to give her a good bombardment, give the other side. By then, the Germans didn't have a, an air force. So what happened was they got the Americans to send over their big, uh, what their big uh, fortresses there to bomb hell out of the German. But uh, the Americans had a, quite a big reputation for just dropping their bombs on their own people, you know. The sooner they got rid of the bombs, the bloody better. Yeah. So they took us back about five miles. <laughs> we had to come back from our positions five miles after fighting for the bloody positions to get up there. Well, it was safer for us. <laughs> and the way they went, we watched them, we could watch them and hear all the boom, boom going on. Five miles away, softening up the other side. Eh, you know? ah. And when uh, D-Day came, you know, to advance, well, an hour before we went over the stop bank, they had some stop bank thing. Tipui Patara of 28 Māori Battalion. And uh, hour before that, all the bombers came, uh, Americans and uh, British, and our own bomb just over the Senior River. They bombed about three or four hours before we advanced, and man, there was smoke. <laughs> you hardly see in front of you. That's daytime. And, well, the poor Germans, eh, they were all were bomb happy, I suppose, eh, you know. And when we went into this house, they were all just sitting there, you know. So we lined them up outside, and that's where we, me and my mate grabbed all the the officers at Lugas and that. That's what they used to do. That's what they call that looting, eh? Don Adams of 21 Italian. The big attack came on the Senio, on the Senio River. That was tremendous. That if it uh, was a surprise attack, artillery barrage going on for a couple of hours before we crossed the line. Um, that was pretty frightening as well as the Air Force and the artillery opening the big push. 27 Machine Gun Battalion also gave a massive firepower support to the infantry battalions. Morris Johnston recalls. We had a big old shoot-off. They decided that we'd have a big shoot as the last shoot of the battalion. And uh, 
this is at the senior. We'd moved up onto this flat area and dug in, and we were um, trying to do something about a, a bunch of, of uh, German machine guns that were worrying the infantry. I'm not sure what battalion it was. And uh, we had a lot of fun there because um, we dug in and then our sergeant was a bit of a hard case. When they were firing at us, we kept firing by just lifting our hand up out of the hole and he'd stop and lift. And when he lifted out behind us, he'd stop. And then when he stopped, evidently, we don't know what happened, but we fired off a whole lot of belts. And the whole battalion, evidently, I didn't know the whole battalion were doing this as a final go of the Vickers Gunners. They put in daily bridges, uh, and uh, we were late going across because we, uh, I was with the Sigur Sergeant, and we went, uh, we were one of the first trans transports allowed across. The rest of them were all taken the uh, soldiers. Harry Shirley of 21 Battalion didn't get far across the river. As you know, you got to walk up the bank and then you go over the other side. My cobber beside me, he walked on a landmine on the top of the bank and blew his legs off and he screamed out for me, help me, help me, but I couldn't because I had to keep going. Got over the other side. So I got, a shell landed beside me and I got blasted in the air and I've still got a busted eardrum in this one over it. That was around about the 1st of April, for April from memory and the war was over in night to May. Gordon Briggs recalls taking prisoners just after the Senio crossing. I got four I got four out of a house but they were sitting there with their hands in their heads when I crashed through the door uh, and to this the Italians have their animal barns and part of the house and they were setting up the end um, with their hands on their heads and there was an Italian couple there about 50, mid 50s, early 50s probably. They were there with them and we took them out. Uh, this was a sad thing for me because I saw in the darkness I saw this box on a table with a, uh, a curtain, you know, curtain stuff over it, and I went over and lifted it up with my Tommy gun, and there was a 12-year-old girl in there who had been killed three or four days before, and the following morning we decided we'd take the box down to the a cemetery down, I don't know how far away it was, uh, from the go drive down a, a dirt road in the back of the uh, stop bank. And we elected to send the, a driver, the driver of the carrier, two of our guys and the husband down to bury the little girl. We'd done that the following morning. And the, the lady, she was very, very upset and 
Um, I thought she was going to chop my head off one part of it because she wanted to go. And we couldn't afford to let her go. That was sad for me. I've never forgotten that. The day before that attack across the Seno, the, the sky was just full of, of planes. So there must have been a lot of other casualties other than that little girl. Once the Seno River was crossed, being a mechanised division, the New Zealanders raced ahead. This often surprised the Germans, as Ted Waters remembers. But we, uh, that was another thing we did. We, we come across a uh, German um, dugout uh, hospital, and uh, we, anyway, we went. We got the the head sharing, and he said, "Are you jokers parachuters?" We said, "No, we're not." They said, "You couldn't have got here otherwise." I said, "Well, you've got another little thing coming." Following their crossing of the Senio, Nori Miller and his 22 battalion comrades initially moved forward in Canadian armoured personnel carriers. We were carried on, the 25th Battalion went over on the Senio, and then we went through after them. And that's when we got into the kangaroo tanks to carry us on. And we got uh, mortared by the juries and that and I tell you what, it was all hell let loose and that and we swung around in the road and down the end of the road was a tiger tank looking straight down and the tanky just swerved in and we went into a paddock in behind a hedge and he radioed up and we had uh, like cab rank spitfires around and that and got them to blast the, the uh, tank up and that was the first part of going in there. But then we ca came to a house and uh, so we had to go in the house but being a brand gunner, there was three of us, one up this side, one on that side and this end and the chaps went into the house and did the house over and there was a German um, a warrant officer badly wounded with a young soldier about the age of 17 looking after him and that and anyway our boys went in and, and gave him a shot of morphine because he was badly wounded and that and then our stretcher bearers came up and took him away but the young boy it was quite most interesting we searched him and in his pocket he had a piece of bacon, a piece of black bread, and in this side he had a packet of condoms. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we shot him back and that and um, back to the uh, our coming up troops to take him prisoner and that poor little devil. He, he was shaken like a leaf, you know. You stand against the wall with his hands up, you know, and we're standing there with a brain gun to turn him over. <laughs> well, it was a sort of running battle. We we hardly had a. They did have prepared, uh, you know, places prepared for a stand. 
they pulled back from there to the to the next prepared place, and then from there there was fighting there, and then they pulled back to the next place. But oh, the, the you know it was the writing on the wall. They they had had it. They had had it, and uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of a lot of the war for us from there was just on trucks for them till they we reached the next stand, you know, the next uh, fortified position. And of course, we debus and deploy, and and uh, yeah. And we, we by then we had the, except for the tanks, we we had superior armor to them, but their tanks, they they the, the the tiger, what they call the tiger tanks. Oh man, our tankies, they were very very uh, aware of them. As soon as they were you know on the scene, you know they they would uh, yeah be, be sure every. You know, they were bombarded before they'd come forward, you know. Otherwise, uh, they, they'll pull up behind the, the house. Well, we'd be in the bloody houses. They'd pull up for shelter behind there just so they won't be in direct fire from the 88s on the on the um, Tiger tanks. They had 88mm guns to our 75 on, on our tanks, Sherman tanks. Yeah, that was the difference. And oh boy, they created havoc, the Tigers. So they had to be well bombarded before our fellows would come out with their, their tanks, you know. Night attack is alright because they can't see the, the tank. They're, they're right with night attack. Don Adams of 21 Battalion was now also mechanised. I went and joined the branch areas because I'd had experience in training in New Zealand and in Egypt on branch carriers. For a while I was driving the, the Red Cross carrier. One of them had been converted, uh, taking up, picking up the wounded, that sort of thing, taking it back to the regimental aid post, where the uh, uh, the doctor there would... They don't actually do much other than patch you up, ready to send the chaps to what they call ADS, an advanced dressing station, and so on and so on, until they get back to the number one general hospital and then unfortunately they converted some of us to flamethrowers there was flamethrowers uh, very cruel that weapon that mm. like for one, one battalion uh, and we'd been what they call support company um, I suppose there have been half a dozen Bryn carriers attached to each battalion. Well, I think it was each battalion. I know the 21st and the 24th had them. Yeah. They used to call the code name was WASP, the WASP carriers. Well, there's a driver and the person firing the gun, and not always, sometimes two infantrymen at the back. Not always. <laughs> if protection, you pulled a seat and you got rolled down those days and you looked through the apertures. <laughs> Normally you drove one with your head above the the top. Mm. The, the Germans were getting very desperate then by that stage. They knew they were getting driven out of the country and it's like a, a, a cornered animal I suppose, they'll fight back. Mm. Well the, some of the sights I saw, some of the, uh, the, the viciousness of these of these boss plane throwers is a cruel sort of thing really. Um, 
No, yes, there's just some terrible things at times. You harden to it. <laughs> yes. Well, I had the wind up all the time, I suppose, when you're up in the front line, but you've just got to have the courage to keep going. Some of them fell by the wayside, break down. I suppose it depends on the build-up of a person. Fortunately, I, I, I seem to be able to take it on the chin, as it were. We had a big, big tank at the back. Uh, it made the duck, the weight of the fuel in the tank made the carrier sit down on its tail quite a bit. They used to look like a duck. <laughs> but uh, no, I can't remember the statistics very well now. But, uh, they, uh, they certainly are vicious. Yeah, well, I, I actually never, I'd be in the carrier, but I never actually fired it. I'd drive them. Uh, I mean, I'd stand in for others if another driver wasn't there. I'd stand in and, and drive it. And beside me with the chap with the gun, with the flamethrower. A lot of the time I was driving the Red Cross carrier, getting the wounded out, which was a pretty dicey at times. While Don never got fired upon while driving the Red Cross carrier, it would never be too comfortable in the Wasp carriers, because the Germans definitely targeted them. Many times you'd hear tap, tap, tap on the side of the machine gun, on the bullets hitting the, hitting the side of the carrier. But um, they, they went, they went uh, didn't, you wouldn't have the same protection as they did in the tank. But then they used for a different role than what a tank was. Don recalls the main target for the wasp flamethrowers. Pillboxes mainly. Yeah, that's what. Cleaning out that sort of thing with the German resistance was very, very strong. Well, something had to be done about it. Mm. Sometimes if you knew a building was occupied uh, by the enemy, you had to fire on that and set it on fire and drive them out. The reach of the flame was quite amazing. From memory, it would be about, in those days, it was feet and inches, about, oh, I suppose um, 80, 80, 80 yards, then 90 yards, not quite 100. With the recoil, with the pressure, the recoil, when you squeeze the trigger, then the carrier would go back on the springs. It's such a strong recoil. Each of the carriers would usually retain the same crew members. Oh, yes, we had the same. Well, it's best to keep it that way. You get to know one another's good habits and bad habits. Uh, we usually slept, if, if the houses, or the castles they call them, the house, any houses that were, were there, we used to occupy them. Some of them be knocked around, but you managed the best way you could. Very seldom had to put up. We had pup tents, which uh, used them sometimes. <clears throat> no, no, we get ration brought up to us. We we carried food on, on the carriers too, for emergencies. We all had a primus each. <laughs> a lot of reconnaissance going on. That's what, that's often was done with the bridge carriers. Just to have, have a look around, see what the enemy's up to. And you had to try and keep undercover. Otherwise you'd, you'd, you'd uh, draw a bit of attention <laughs> from the enemy. <laughs> yeah. 
As a signal sergeant, Ray Moncur recalls his job at divisional headquarters, where his section received messages so the commanders could keep track of everything that was going on in the front lines. Yes, we used to get a sit rep we used to send out every day, or receive, we used to receive it every day of what the operations were and all that. But we just took it off, didn't take much notice of it, and just gave it to the officers. And then when we moved up from one position to another, the officer, the brigadier would go out with his officers, and the dipsigs would go out with their officers, and the arty would go out with their officers, and they would wreck, do a recce of where to go next, you see. So when that was decided, then we'd all lift up camp and move to the next position. It was just one river to the other river. Essentially, it was all straddled with rivers going into the sea. And the Germans would be on one side and we were on the other side of it. It was all the way then to the Po River, uh, like with different uh, skirmishes in between. Progress for the Allies was rapid as the Germans pulled back, with the major hold-up being the many river crossings. On the 11th of April, the New Zealanders crossed the Santerno River. Then on the 18th and 19th, they smashed the German defences at the Guyana River and crossed that. On the 20th of April, they crossed the Idice River. And the following day, the Allies captured Bologna. On Anzac Day, the 25th of April, 1945, the Kiwis reached the Po River, where a major hold-up was experienced. When we got to the Po River, uh, I then had been transferred to the uh, battalion signals. And I, uh, we set up uh, the whole system. We had uh, uh, telephone connections, and uh, the uh, they decide, they put across a uh, recce, and there was no Germans on the other side, so they decided to uh, go straight across. So we called up uh, these uh, two. Uh, uh, big uh, transporters with boats on. Mm, yes, it got over here. Ted Bluey Homewood of 21 Battalion remembers the Po. Then we went up, we got up to the Po, you know, when we got up to the Po then. Always had a mighty river. Uh, but it's a funny thing when we come back, uh, when we finish the war and come back, Christ, you've got to step across it. And we were, oh, I don't know how wide it was. Christ, you know, it's like the South Island rivers. They're huge when they're, and then they like a little bit like this. Oh, we were, we're going down to this, down to the, uh, down onto the, digging along the back of the stock banks because we are going to, we had to fight. Old Jerry's on the other side. He was over there too, on the other side of the river. They blew the, the bridge, yeah. yeah and uh, New Zealand uh, or engineers. They had to put in a pontoon bridge, yeah. And that took a bit of doing, you know. They could hear them, uh, they start to make the bridge at night, eh? So uh, Germans can't see, uh, you know. But <laughs> They still can hear the racket and all that, uh, and they start shelling and all that stuff, right? 
Believe it. They're big stock banks. They're big stock banks, eh? And uh, so we were going down to dig along there. And of course, uh, they were, we'd been held up mainly because they had to get the Bailey Bridges. And they had to, they got to gather them all up there yeah, because that's a huge, huge, huge bloody, it's gross. It's a huge bridge, you know. And what they used to do was flatten all the stock banks out. They were whopped up and stack banks. They'd be about 40 feet high because they used to graze them all on that, you know. And uh, then they'd flatten them all out and uh, and then build a barley bridge like this and then tip it into the thing and it used to go around and float into, into Aussie. And anyway, build them like this. They build them on, on the good good going and then push them in with the bulldozers and they'd go around, you know. Anyway, uh, they had all the all the, uh, the engineers and all that there and then we were going through and laughed. Six thunderbolts come over. Six or eight thunderbolts. They're Yanks. And uh, this, see these thunderbolts? And I laughed. I said to the boys, they're ours. I'm going to try and make out, you know, bloody raven. I said, they're ours now, come on. Because we're marching, they were starting to get a bit bloody fidgety and that. And I said, come on, they're ours. And now, oh, they get me assholes about this after, about their hours. Next thing down they come, eh? Oh, have we lost uh, 14 trucks. And they had all this Bailey Bridge stuff on. And uh, and uh, I think it was eight, eight Kiwi drivers. Eight Kiwis killed there. Yeah, Yanks got them, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're bloody, they're ours, all right. They're the other boys given, they all would get back in again. They say, oh, they're ours, we're right, they're ours. They got given the bloody fingers, eh? Yeah, they're ours, all right. Just as well, we took off into the bloody countryside, we'd, we'd cop this. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, then we had to, had to be held up, you know, till they got the, replaced the bridge. So we're, we're stuck there, and these, we're right down in the back here, and, uh, and then when we went across, we had those little rubber dinghies, the four of us in the dinghy. And uh, laugh, I got up and peed in the pole. Laugh, they always laugh like hell. I was, I'm going to feed in the pole. I got up and feed in the pole. And when we get ashore at the other side, uh, oh, we, old Jerry is, oh, he's, he's back about in the house, about 200 yards back. But when he, when the stonk and that, and of course, our planes, they were, they were bombing the other side, really, our fellas. And old Jerry took off then, and we were, ch we were on foot chasing them, you know. We were on there, because they never had any transport over the, over the Po. They were still putting the bridge up, and we were told to go on. So we went on and on and on. And, uh, oh, about next day before we, they come, caught us up, oh, we were about bloody 30 miles and, and up and going like hell. I don't know what the hell we're going like hell for, but we were, there was no Jerry's there, so we kept going, we are told to. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, we went across the Po by uh, uh, sort of a raft thing with two carriers on it and they had outboard motors on. That's how we got across the Po River. Had a pee in it. First thing to do, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
I can, I can remember others. I remember uh, I come to a canal once and they had a, a scissor bridge. They were a, a Churchill tank and they had a, a bridge formation on it, folded out, and you could drive over them. And I booted the carrier too hard and, and I bottomed the diff on the, on the thing, you see. You should, I've just got to cross there gently, but I put the arse of the carrier down and jammed it. I remember that one. I can't remember the Adichie or any of the others. Oh yeah, the, the New Zealand engineer, en, engineers, they put up barely bridges, so so the vehicle flow of the vehicles could continue. That's what's <coughs> that's what got to be thought of. You got you got to think of all your backup coming up behind. So uh, they, 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 the engineers did a wonderful job. They had sometimes these uh, barges when we crossed over the river. Oh, some of the bridges would be blown to bits and others would be remain. Any, any that was in repairable condition, the engineers had put Bailey Bridge there. They put them up overnight, like a big, huge mechanic's head. Yeah. But that was, um, I know they kept up pretty well with that. The pontoon bridge when you're driving was strange because it, the weight of your vehicle push it down and then you come up and you go down and you're like going across the river on perfectly calm water when we crossed over. Yeah. That bloke and that wrote that book and I, we went, we were chosen to go out on the flanks after the, because the whole movement was going up the coast towards Venice and Adichie and all those places. But nothing was being done on the flanks, so they selected my carrier and Ben and a Sherman tank to go out and just sweep the flanks, and we got an awful lot of trouble. Just with people, the Italians had never seen it, come back drunk as... If we had to run into trouble, we'd have got slaughtered, but we didn't. I've got a mark on me, a silly bloody partisan. We're in this restaurant, sort of restaurant, like, and this partisan come in with a German stick grenade and he dropped the bloody thing and it went off and I got a wee mark. I don't know which thumb it was now. I must tell you a, a, a little story about me and a copper. We were in our trucks advancing up the top of Italy and the Donars had had, that's the, what we call the dispatch riders. And we said to them, well, give me a spell on the bike. And they were quite happy. So Macabre got on one of the bikes and I got on the other. <laughs> we went different ways. And I liberated one town <laughs> and he liberated another one because the troops hadn't gone through them, you see. And we're coming back to join the div and some Itai people rushed out and said, Tedeschi, Tedeschi. Tedeschi was a German, you see, in the house of Kaza, Kaza. So bugger me, they bring out two German prisoners. So we put them on the pillion seat at the back behind us, toodle off into Venice and hand them over to them. There was a big building there with hundreds of German prisoners there. So we took them there. I could have easily ripped our throats up or something. And that was rather, I was pretty full of wine and whatnot, you know, I didn't know what we were doing. 
when we took these two prisoners, we took their watches and money off them straight away, because if we didn't do it, they had to take it. And when we got into this building with all about 300 Germans there, we took about 40 watches and quite a lot of money off them. And we could see there was a Yugoslav soldier guarding them, and he was getting a bit itchy. So we thought we'd better get out of it. So we got out of it and sold the watches and sold the, used the money to drink and whatnot, carry on. So it was both ways. Our chaps, when they were taken prisoner, they were stripped of everything. And we, we did our share. We, so that was rather an experience for me. I went out on the patrol one night. I don't know how, about 15 of us, I suppose. And we went into the Maori B Company to tell them we we're going out in front. We called in there and they said the commander was Jim Matahari from Tiamutu. I think he actually was from here originally, but he was the major of that company. And he said, before you go, have a cup of chai, tea. And I put my tummy gun down against the wall, and I had, I had two magazines, 20 round magazines, and they have a tape together, one up and one down. And I put this gun down there, and we had a cup of tea, and I went, and the bastards had pinched it. So I went up to Paul, the sergeant in charge of the patrol. I said, they've flogged my gun. And he said, well, you can't go with us without a weapon. He said, wait here till dawn, then walk back, which was scary. That's what happened. They've been <laughs> it had no butt, and it only had a sling. You could, I could wear it under my, my um, greatcoat. And you never know I had it. Not that I had it, but that, that's how I used it. Yeah. Some Maori thought he had a better right to it than I did. But he might have saved my life. We didn't argue about politics. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know about politics or anything like that, but those partisans, they were really communist. Because there's more communists when you read all about it in Italy than, than in Russia. And they were flexing their muscles. Um, they had the Red Star on, remember? Mm. They had the Red Star. So we would, say, take a town, and you mightn't see one of them. But it wasn't very long before they all come out like this, or like those with the Red Star. And they would, they'd say they'd capture the town on that. And they'd have the flag up and And it wasn't until AMGOT come through, which is the Allied military government. We wasn't there. We'd, we'd be another. We'd, we had to keep going, you know. We'd be up there. Uh, and they'd take over and, and, and pull our flag up and, and shoot them through half the time. But uh, what used to annoy us, that if you come out like here somewhere, and you'd see the old Jerry shot in the back, you know. It's a different type of, we didn't like to see that. They wouldn't come out and have him on. They'd wait till he's getting out and then let, let him have one in the back, you know. Uh, the day that Venice fell, I didn't have a job that day. God knows why. Pat Green of 24 Battalion. So, uh, Snow, 
Boyle, uh, he was a truck driver for us, he didn't have a job either, and I think there was a third bloke. We decided that we'd go to Venice, and we were on the mainland, and Venice is about four k's out on a causeway, and we didn't have transport. And we got a, a <coughs> started on it. We didn't know the causeway or anything like that, I think, God, we thought we'd just get down to a wharf and we were there. And we started walking and thumbing, trying to thumb a ride and it was, everyone was in a bloody hurry and no one was doing much about it. And a bloke came along on a bike and we bribed him to let us ride his bike for a little while and he was dead scared we'd piss off. He knew about thieves and sold. Anyway, <coughs> we came to a bloody uh, roadblock and there was provos on it. So we got up and walked down underneath the bridge and it was tidal and the tide was out. We walked past these buggers and uh, and got back on it. And a staghound uh, armoured car uh, from a British, famous British regiment came along and they gave us a lip. So we rode on the outside of this bloody staghound into uh, Venice and... Uh, there wasn't much you could buy or drink, but we got into a gonda, gondolier, gonda, gondola, and uh, the bloke was pushing us around there, and uh, oh, it was bloody nice. And and we'd acquired a couple of bottles of beer, bugger all, and some Yanks bloody well said, Hey, Kiwis, where'd you get that grog? We should piss off. This is uh, fire water for fighting troops only, not for you bludgeoning back a base-boiling bastard. said, we took this bloody place and you take it over before we bloody well finish taking it. They were still fighting for it. Uh, we had, uh, the, the big one was that we uh, we struck all the the uh, rear signal from uh, Yugoslavia that come across trying to get back into Italy and go up and join up with their, and they, they had boats, oh, you'd never seen anything like it. But before we got up the Trieste, uh, Jerry come in, tried to come in behind us at Lignana. And uh, anyway, the Bofors got him, the Bofors drove him in there, and uh, with all his gear, and uh, uh, Oh, we got we took four thousand prisoners. Four thousand prisoners there. Anyway, uh, uh, so they had all this gear, you see, and because it's like a big beach, and when the tide, uh, so anyway, I had to. They put me in to, to look after this gear. I was there in my platoon. Oh, we had a great job. Anyway, laugh. We were looking after there, and. Uh, all the guns were loaded and all that, you know. We used to get on and empty the mags and all that. <laughs> we had a little water down there. And then we go for a swim. And uh, then, uh, uh, oh, oh, we had a fellow called Sinbad. He'd, he'd been in the Merchant Navy, knew about engines, old Sinbad. He, he was just an ordinary soldier, but he knew about engines. But he'd, he'd been in the, uh, in the Merchant Navy before he went in the Army. So he was Sinbad. So we had old Sinbad. <laughs> and we get this thing on, and we used to get the salt in that off the boats, you know. 
And then we got this creek up to a village, and then we'd swap the salt and that for vino and that. <laughs> and anyway, uh, oh, and the old light guys, they used to come down with their horse and cart. We'd have it set a couple of brands, you know, set up a couple of brands. Because we, we never used to patrol them. They'd come down. I would, oh, and we get going with the old brand, I'd just behind the horse and cart. Old Tony up there, he'd forget all about his salt. <laughs> we'd chase him off with the brand gun. <laughs> So we were down there about, oh, about three weeks, I suppose, oh, about fortnight, I suppose, when I look back. We had a great fun down there, and then uh, they come and, you know, I got all the, all the gear there, yeah, and, uh, yeah, we was down there looking at, but they took, we had, uh, yeah, we got just on 4,000 prisoners there, I've been telling. Oh, and before we got to that, another place, we had 1,100, and uh, they, had, they had a great old boy, he was old, German and he'd been on the Russian front and all that. He was great. He and with us, uh, he used to have, me, uh, uh, have meals with us and that. He was a, and he hadn't been home. We heard from his wife for two years. Anyway, we uh, we had finished up with seven thousand six hundred prisoners because that was because in between, of course, the. Uh, the uh, the Germans had uh, competed in the Yugoslavia, so uh, yeah, so we uh, then uh, we handed them over to the Poms and then carried on to Trieste. It was funny when we were advancing towards Trieste. We were Fifth Brigade. We were in the middle, and there was Sixth Brigade on our right and Mary Battalion on our left, and we were shooting right through and they were doing all the fighting they didn't didn't touch us at all and we got into Trieste before they did. Following more than a month of hard fighting and rapid advance since they'd crossed the Senio, the New Zealanders had reached the top of Italy where they turned east along the coast to take the famous port city of Trieste known to the Kiwis as Trieste. They entered the city on the 2nd of May 1945. On the same day, the German forces in Italy surrendered unconditionally. Six days later, the entire war in Europe would end. Colonel Haddon Donald, commander of 22 Battalion, took the surrender at Trieste. And we took Trieste, and I took the surrender of the German commander in Trieste, and the 22nd Battalion were the first in, and uh, that was really quite a, a fitting end to the war, as far as we were concerned. Uh, General Lincolnback, he was um, he wanted to surrender to General Freiburg. Uh, I took his headquarters, and uh, we brought him in as a prisoner uh, with about 300, and uh, he had a great admiration for Freiburg and he wanted to surrender to him personally. So I took him in my uh, jeep to the general's headquarters. We'd take... So at about three o'clock in the morning I took um, General Lincoln back in to see uh, Freiburg. But however, I took him to the general and the general was in, asleep in his caravan just outside the, uh, the castle and uh, an orderly went into the general with the 
uh, request that Lincoln back come in and surrender to him personally. And uh, I heard the general grunt and, and says, no, I won't see him. Tell him to surrender to Donald. And that was the end of it. <laughs> but when we did get to Trieste, we had, a, where I was, my platoon, we had an old school over there. And there was about, oh, well, I got 32 prisoners out of it one night. We, when we started to really push ours, flex our muscles a bit too, we all got jobs of work to do. And uh, so he was in the middle of us, this school. We went over about three o'clock in the morning, my platoon, and we got them with their pants off. They were all in bed. <laughs> yeah, so we got them out, and then my job was to take the radio station. We all had jobs to do, and laugh. That's when old Charlie turned up again. I was at this job to do, and there was three tanks, and who should turn up but Charlie, you see. So we went up to Recky the place to have a look and make sure that when the, the bloom went all, we were all had to do this. And it was Radio Trieste. I had to take the radio station. Laugh. We go on there and they were on the air, you know. And this old, old Charlie goes in, like a bull, you know. Oh, you can hear him. Oh, and this, this uh, fellow on the air, Silencia, silencia, that's silence, and I tell him, silencia, oh, shut up, he said, well, come up and blow the place up. <laughs> oh, God, he's funny, oh, shut up, he said, we'll blow the place up. <laughs> I was mortar platoon commander for a while, um, and uh, once we crossed the senior, I was back to um, uh, platoon commander again, and then uh, back to mortar platoon, mortar platoon commander right through to... Uh, Trieste. Aubrey Bowser of 28 Maori Battalion. We were, the Maori Battalion never got into Trieste. Um, we were up uh, on the hills overlooking uh, Trieste Harbour itself in a place called uh, Villa um, Prosecco for a start. And then we advanced um, to a place called Villa Pacina, which was the head of a, there was a railway, a railway line came from Trieste right up through the uh, hills and emerged at the top of the hill at um, where, where our, our final de uh, destination was. place called Opacina. Uh, it looked down onto Trieste, it was like a, um, ooh, quite a, a high piece of land across there. That's where we were when the news came through the war had finished at Opacina. But we had, uh, we could go into Trieste whenever, well, within region, whenever we liked. And, uh, we were in Trieste and we were billeted in the University of Trieste and uh, we were up on the second floor and there was a little, uh, in the library, and there was a little balcony and right opposite it, on a very narrow street, was a balcony facing us and in it were partisans and in their balcony they had sandbags and a machine gun and grenades and in our balcony, we had the same, and we were facing each other at about 12 feet apart, sort of, might be 15 feet apart. And uh, it was a rather tense sort of a situation. And uh, nothing happened there, but uh, the uh, Yugoslav partisans were very unfriendly, and you couldn't understand their language, and uh, it was difficult.
and each day one of us had to go down and report to battalion headquarters, which was in the middle of the town in a big hotel. And to get there, the quickest way was through a red light area. It was the only one I ever saw in Italy. Uh, <coughs> and uh, we, we lingered there. And uh, some partisans came in, and one of them was a boy partisan, and he was loaded up with machine gun belts across him, his chest, and he had a knife down his, his leg, uh, leg of his putties. And he had grenades hanging around everywhere, and he had a pistol, and, and he came in and <coughs> he stayed, caused a bit of an uproar. He uh, wanted a woman. And he approached one of the women and she said, I don't fuck kids. <laughs> and that, he understood what she said. And he pulled his pistol out and he's waving his arms around and Bobsy died. And, uh, Madame said, oh, Marie, take the bastard upstairs and fix him up. So she reluctantly took him up there. <coughs> After a while, this young bloke swaggered down. He had a bloody woman and he was a bloody man. <laughs> and, uh, he, he was happy and, 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 and Madame had she'd settled a bloody difficult situation. At Trieste, when we got to Trieste, of course, the war had finished. When we got to uh, Trieste, a lot of us uh, were having run-ins with the Red Caps. And because uh, uh, most of us used to put our caps in the, uh, in the shoulder and the camp, the was names were keeping, trying to come and arrest us for not having a hat on. Anyway. Um, Freiburg put out a notice that uh, um, owing to uh, the shortage of what's known, uh, half the people didn't have hats that fitted, so they could put them in there. <laughs> he was a, he was a soldier's soldier. With the end of their long war, the New Zealand division should have been able to finally relax, but it was not quite like that as another new war was looming and the Kiwis found themselves caught up in what was basically the first act of the Cold War. It looked as though we were possibly going to have to fight the Yugoslavs because they were very arrogant and uh, difficult to get on with. We had a bit of trouble with the old Tito, you know, the Yugoslav uh, commander, Partisan. Yeah, and they, and uh, they only had uh, horses and carts to for transport. Yeah, and uh, they had women in the army. Partisan, hey, partisan. Yeah, we used to call them the women, pistol packing mamas. Yeah. Yeah, well, they caused a bit of trouble there at Trieste. They reckon it was their, their town, you know. It was in their area. I think the Italians, you know. They reckon it was theirs. 
and we were just there to keep the the peace. And that's about all we do. We just had to keep keep the troops occupied. They started the football clubs and went to the race, races. They used to have Italians used to have races. Got, they organised everything again when the war was finished. But it was a, there was a, some we saw some pretty cruel sights there too, with the partisans and the way the Italians treated the partisans treated some of the uh, ones that used to side with the Germans. They got pretty pretty gruesome. And uh, the big square big square in Trieste was a terrible sight with people slaughtering one another, and we we had to keep out of it. Partisans and uh, the partisans were, did a great job. There were there were Italians that were sort of um, tried to you know, act like an army, but with what supplies they could get hold of. Because mm. we had a bit of a hold up there in the Tito. Men had come down from the north. They were fight, fighting now in our support. Norm Harris of 24 Battalion. They had come down and they, they camped in Trieste and uh, they refused to get out. And the powers that be were having some discussions for a while. And we, meantime, we just eyed one another in the street like stray dogs. But uh, Marshal Tito wanted the history of the war bloody dividing up, I suppose, which is fair enough, because they, they, they suffered heavily during the war. They suffered through the Italians too when they, they joined with Hitler. And anyway, uh, they, they, they threatened to bloody, they had these little tanks, little print gun carriers, they had only little bloody things running round and round, you know, trying to scare us off. Uh, Freiburg wouldn't be scared off by nobody, right? So we formed up, I formed the ring around the top on the hills, ready to do battle with uh, with Tito. So they've had to fly Freiburg to England to have a talk with the higher ups, I suppose, to get permission before we, before we can fire anything at the at Tito's. If he did fire anything at us, he'd have been oh decimated. That's because we were there in force. Where we set up a headquarters, they'd set up a machine gun post close by. And, you know, they were threatening and they were pretty mad-headed. Uh, but um, they didn't like the idea of uh, us taking Trieste because they wanted to take Trieste as a, as a port for Yugoslavia. And, but they'd had an agreement with Churchill beforehand that they wouldn't do this, but they broke that agreement. And, uh, and they were very aggressive for quite some time, difficult to get alongside. The Yugoslavians were in Trieste at the same time as we were, and there was a little bit of animosity there. We had to be very, very tactful. Uh, one place we were at, uh, right down on the coast there for a while, I've tried to think of the name, uh, what it was, but we were in one building on one side, and the Yugoslavs were on the other side. Of course, Tito was mixed up in all this, and he, he reckoned he should have Trieste. Old Tito, he was streaming through this way. He wanted to get down to the Melfaconi line. That was a line down out of Trieste, you see. Um, uh, 
he he wasn't the real patron saint of Yugoslavia. It was Mihalovic. Now it's but yeah, it's just like say Labour National, and that was it. But old Mihalovic, he got he was the real real fella, you know, and he got tipped off up into the hills. And old Tito, they flexed their muscles and took over. So they were against each other, mm. see. And because uh, then old Tito, we were, we were we were arming him. You read all the books. We were arming him, and old Mihalovic, he was up in the hills. So at that stage, of course, um, we were nose to nose with the uh, Yugoslavs. Um, apparently. After the First World War, um, that part of um, uh, Europe or, or that part of Italy was was taken from the Yugoslavs and handed over to the Italians. That was the whole Trieste area like that. So um, they beat us to the area there, and of course they, they um, said, "Right, this was Yugoslavia. We're taking it over again." And they gave us, I think, 48 hours to um, evacuate or else. And um, Freiburg uh, said we're here and we're staying here. So uh, up where we were, we'd bring up a um, anti-tank gun. They'd do the same couple hundred yards up the road, and um, uh, things were were fairly sticky. And the Yugoslavs and Nazis up the street with a patrol of so many rifles, and in the English or the New Zealanders or whoever it was at that time, we'd march down the road with more rifles than they had, you know, it became quite competitive. We didn't want to start a third world war, <laughs> so it had to be very tactful. If we had a tank at one corner, the enemy had an anti-tank gun facing it a hundred metres away. If we had a brain carrier, they had some kind of an armoured vehicle there. Uh, where we had a balcony that had stuff, they had one facing it. There was all sorts of distrust, horrible, and they were surly people, difficult to understand, and and, and the local people would whisper to us, when 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 are these people going away? And they'd point to these bloody partisans, and <coughs> you'd see a railway train going through the town near the wharf and there'd be coal on it and you'd see the coal was hiding something and it was bloody loot that they were put on the train and were shifting it back to Yugoslavia. They were doing all sorts of nasty things like that. He, 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 he had Trieste all to in his own way. Well, he really raped Trieste. I mean, all, say, the garages and all that, He'd have all that here with taking out the machinery and all this and taking it there. It was very tense. And for us blokes, we'd just finished one war and it taken us a bloody long while and we were faced with a very real possibility of another bastard. And what gave me a real fright was um, uh, I was more, more division commander at that stage and um, I got a um, um, message from... Um, Colonel Owateria to um, bring a brain carrier um, to battalion quarters. I said, you want me to send a driver? No, I told you to bring it. So um, I hopped in it and came up to battalion headquarters and I said, uh, what, what's, what's the problem, sir? He said, uh, we're doing a reconnaissance. And I said, uh, re reconnaissance? And he said, yes. So he got on the left-hand side standing up 
And I said, where are we going? He said, we're going right up to the Yugoslav lines to Villa Opportuna. There were two roads, one went up to the centre and the other road came back um, along the cliff and they had all these um, um, massive gun emplacements and that uh, uh, guarding the, um, the harbour. And I said, uh, you are serious, sir? Yes, I am serious. <laughs> so we started off and uh, it, it was absolutely amazing. The, the, uh, the Yugoslav just, as we went past, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And I'm waiting for any minute, to go, Poof, you know. And uh, anyway, we went right up, came back the other road, and we got the same reception everywhere we went. They, were, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Anyway, um, we got back, and Awatira thanked me very much. And uh, about half an hour later, there was this great big um, black Italian car came down through the Yugoslav lines to do the same to us. <laughs> the Murray boys shot it up as it came through. Uh, but anyway, I, I think there, there was a... Um, uh, they gave um, the Yugoslavs so much time to get back beyond some line that they'd put on the ground and um, things eased off after that. Eventually, uh, they agreed... Tito agreed to, to pull out on a certain day at 10 o'clock. He agreed to pull out at 10 o'clock. Well, when the time came in the morning, uh, they were still uh, on their bit of reserve ground up on top of a hill, you see, and somebody reported to the company commander that they were still there. Support company had been designated to uh, oust Tito. I think, because they were the most experienced soldiers in the battalion. In the, in the main, they've had longer in the forces, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was of particular interest to me in that I discovered then, you see, some, we'd let some of our blokes go and leave, and it included officers. So, with 10 o'clock looming, we had to face the thought of a fight with Tito. The company commander was one Doug Lloyd. He was a nice little chap, dentist in civilian life. Nice fella. And Doug said to me, I think I was acting company sergeant major. And uh, Doug said to me, he said, Norm, he said, we're going to have to put two, two lots of men up to that house those blokes. He said, you'll lead half of the company and I'll lead the other half. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, we were all, we all, we, yeah, we moved off, that's right, because some jokers were crying, some were swearing. Uh, they thought the war was over, you see. Mm. Now it was starting again. Uh, but... Uh, so anyway, we took off, and I was leading the one group up the hill. And when I peeped over the top of the hill, and I saw their rifles all piled on the lawn, I never thanked God more in my life than I did on that occasion. There's no bloody atheists over there. With the war over and the stalemate with the Yugoslavs now diffused, 
the Kiwis were able to properly relax and make use of their surroundings. And we had quite a few months there and we had a wonderful time. The war being over and uh, we were told, well now the war's over, it doesn't mean you can go home tomorrow. It can take a long time to organise things. And I didn't get home till um, January 46. And the ward finished in uh, uh, May, the previous year. So we were all that time getting home. And uh, of course when we got up to Trieste, the weather was just coming right. because we were getting into summer over there. And we were right on the beach, it was lovely. We used to go along to a beach, get a tram out of town to uh, Barcole Beach and uh, we were uh, lounging around there, the war was over and, and there were four women with us uh, that were near us and they could speak a bit of English so we, uh, we ganged up and they were wearing the first bikinis we'd ever seen and they were the briefest ones that I'd ever seen. In fact, one of them had a black moustache coming out <laughs> from something down below. And we were positively embarrassed with these people, but they were nice people and we were passing. And <clears throat> our reinforcement was going to go home and they decided to put on a, uh, a function in the ballroom of the uh, hotel and, Excelsior Hotel in the middle of the town and we had to try and get partners. So we asked these girls if they would uh, come along. We didn't actually pair off but we said well there's about four of us and four of us. They said, um, we said well there'll be, be, be a dance, there'll be an orchestra and there'll be a bit of supper. So if the dancing and the music aren't much we will get a bit of tucker. And I said oh yeah, yeah that'd be good. Well, <clears throat> we got to the bloody function, we walked in with these girls, and w where we were billeted, there were university students that were still coming in using the library a bit, and uh, they, were, they were a nice class of person. And we asked some of them if they would care to come to this function. We said, well, we need some ladies for partners, and... Uh, all we ask you is come with and they said, well, yeah, we'd love to come, but uh, uh, we've got to be chaperoned. They said, do you mind if I bring my mother? No, bring your mothers too. Feed them up on some bloody biscuits and whatever happened. And anyway, the night of the function, we get into the bloody hall with these girls from the beach and the university girls arrives and they started throwing wobblies. They weren't coming into the bloody hall while those bloody beach girls were there. And of course there was all sort of yelling and screaming and carrying on. And we found out that the beach girls were... Um, they had been employed in the local brothel. And they were known prostitutes. And the varsity girls weren't going to be mixing with them. And it was either him or them or us. And uh, the beach girls had been on the beach because when the Germans were withdrawing, the, the, um, 
the girls in the brothel had worked overtime farewelling them and they were examined uh, weekly by a medical doctor and he'd examined them before we got there or about the same time and he suspended these four girls because they were saddle sore from <laughs> so much activity. <laughs> so anyway, when the war finished, so we're coming back from Trieste then, it's over, so we're coming down to Lake Trasimeno and that, and I've got to re report the orderly room, and we had 400, I've got to go to Taranto, there's 450 prisoners there, had to pick them up and bring them back to Egypt. And uh, it was on board boats, it was an old Union Company boat here, the Tamarilla, and there's 450 Jerry's. And uh, we picked them up, and the fellow in charge of them was a fellow called Major Hanson. Now his father, his father is Hanson's engineering at Ellerslie. Hicko Mowers and all that, he was that, uh, he, he was more of a Kiwi than me. And he'd gone to Germany to study. And, because uh, everybody had a foreign name or anything, they stuck him in the jug here. And they stuck his father in. So he thought, holy hell, if I go back to New Zealand, they're going to stick me in the jug. So what are you thinking, he said, these fellows come along with leather coats and told him, what's the story? So he said, I backed the wrong horse. He told me, he said, I backed the wrong horse. He said, he joined the German army. And uh, anyway, uh, that's how he, he come to be. And he'd, be, he'd been on the Russian front, net. He said, I'm lucky to get out of that. He, he, he'd talk a better English than me. He's, he's a Kiwi, really. Anyway, uh, he he could control all those jerrys and everything better than me. And of course, they were, every morning we used to go down and have inspection and all this. Everything was done perfect, you know. And uh, yeah, so then I brought them back to Alexandra. And then I, we took them up to a prisoner war camp up by El Alamein. And that's where we left them. episode of Courage and Valor, you've heard Raymond Kerr, Ted Waters, Nolan Ray Hania, Te Pui Patera, Don Adams, Morris Johnston, Harry Shirley, Gordon Briggs, Norrie Miller, Ted Bluey Homewood, Pat Green, Haddon Donald, Aubrey Bowser, and Norm Harris. My thanks to the Te Awamutu RSA, Richard Carstens, Harima Fraser of 28 Murray Battalion Association and Mary Donald of Auckland War Memorial Museum. This episode may have told the story of the end of the war for the New Zealand Infantry, but it is not the end of their story in Courage and Valour. The next episode will be entitled Life in the Poor Bloody Infantry and will have a compilation of stories from the infantry veterans that have not yet made it into the series and give a general all-round view of the infantryman's life in general, rather than focusing on specific battles and events. So stay tuned for episode 10 coming soon. <laughs>